the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together as always. And we've got a lot to cover as we head into, uh, well, the holiday week and um, a lot to cover. So uh, I, I've got a great guest uh, coming up. I'm not sure when I'll get him this week. I, I might get him later today. We're playing some phone tag. His name is David Rose, Professor David Rose. He is a professor over at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and a uh, wonderful guy, fascinating man, um, has written a, a number of books um one of which he references in this article that he wrote. Um, and, uh, and I will, we'll talk about that another time. I think I've had him on the show talking about his book. The book is called Why Culture Matters Most. But in this culture we live in, um, the fact that he wrote a shorter column, uh, over at, um, lawliberty.org makes it easy. His name is David C. Rose. He's a professor of economics at UMSL, University of Missouri, St. Louis. Um, anyway. We'll talk with him in a moment, but uh, or uh, maybe we'll talk to him today. I'm not sure, or maybe later this week. But here's the thing: he has um, he has knocked me uh, into a discussion of what you need to know today's wink. So don't forget, visit proamericareport.com. You can find out all these great interviews I do. You'll find them all there. You can sign up for the daily email. You can link into all the Phyllis Schlafly great work. So proamericareport.com. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook, at Eagle Ed Martin on Twitter. Facebook is Ed Martin Live. And other, other on other social media, it's Ed Martin. So lots to there. Okay, so here's my thing. Here's what you need to know. I think I have convinced you, I hope I have, that we have to turn on its head the Ronald Reagan maxim, which was trust and verify, trust and verify. Reagan used the phrase trust and verify. Uh, and I don't know if how, how frequently he used it, but it certainly became identified with him and his uh, effort um, to um, to uh, uh, describe how to uh, deal with the Soviets. Now, it is um, actually, I looked it up the last week, it's actually a, a phrase that was used as a, it's a Russian proverb, um, and it means trust. The phrase is actually trust but verify, trust but verify. Um, and uh, Ronald Reagan used it then talking about the Soviets. And, and uh, if you look, um, the trust and verify, he didn't use but, uh, he was specifically talking about the efforts to reduce nuclear armament. Okay, so that's the context. And as I said to you, we have to turn on its head, trust and verify, and call it trust, excuse me, distrust and verify, distrust and verify. So what happened in this David Rose piece, which is what you need to know, is he's got me thinking about this. Because here's the reality. We are a culture, the American culture, relies on a, a set of values that makes it so that we understand the predictability of being together. Meaning, if you're in America, you can count on a business deal being honored, in part because there's laws that honor it, but also because people honor deals. If you're in America, you can count on the fact that there will be the rule of law as to, say, criminal conduct, because it's true, we have a system that does honor that, but also we kind of want that, generally, as a people. 
And so what David Rose argues, and we'll talk again with him at a, a certain later on this week or whenever. But what I'm saying is this is distrust and verify is the only sane thing you can do when you're faced with such rampant inability to trust. When you see and, and hear and feel and understand the fact that there are so many aspects of our lives that are broken, completely broken. And, and, you know, you look up and you say, well, can I trust, uh, the, the, uh, FBI? Well, it doesn't look like it. I mean, it really doesn't look like it, right? I mean, is there a way that you can say to yourself, I'm going to trust the, uh, the FBI and, and in the face of everything that they've done to challenge that? It's hard to do. It's very hard to do. And so this distrust and verify, my idea is that you, you start in a, in a position of, of skepticism, of, of doubt about the ability to trust. Now, maybe that's even more problematic than I think. I mean, when you, when you think about what we need to get along, you do not want to start from the, um, the opening, uh, position that the system is rigged. You don't want to start there. You want to start that the system works for everybody. And isn't that good that we can rely on everybody to work on the system and let's get along. That's what you want to believe. But the fact is, I don't think you can get there. And so the question becomes, is distrust and verify too much doubt, too much skepticism, or is it just what we need to do? Right. And I think it's what we need to do in this context. Remember, I'm not only talking about the FBI. That's bad enough. I'm talking about the media. I'm talking about the, um, I'm talking about, let's say the CDC, right? I, we're, we're talking about, uh, aspects of American life that are, um, much that are, that things we tr- relied on, even say big business, right? Certainly big media, right? It's, it's the, the reality is that you are, uh, that you, we are required to distrust and verify. And you can go down the list. I mean, it feels easy to distrust big tech. But that's because big tech is new and it doesn't seem trustworthy. But it's harder to distrust the FBI. It's harder to distrust uh, law enforcement. It's very hard to distrust our legal system. That's something that we do rely on, you know, and we have to be able to rely on it. I mean, we want to. We want to. And yet we have to um, we have to be honest about it. And so the question, again, back to my point, I mean, you know, and this is what you need to know. If, if our phrase needs to be distrust and verify because of the broken trust that we've had, how do you still maintain the system of hanging, of being together, of, of, of being able to be together uh, systematically and, and finding ways to, uh, rely on each other and the reliance on each other? It also kind of builds towards the predictability of the system, right? I mean, that's the reason. In fact, I think um, um, when you think about what, what in, in other parts of the world, they sometimes have big institutions. They have institutions. And this is, I think, David Rose's point. They do have institutions. They'll have a Supreme Court. They'll have a Congress. But they don't have a culture of trust. And so the institution can't be valuable in the same way. In America, when you come to America and you're a businessman or woman, you come from wherever you want, or you buy land or you do, do deals or whatever, you have a reliability that you can uh, lean on that is in our our DNA. It's in our DNA. It's just who we are. And therefore, you can um, you can operate with more freedom and take more risks. You know, I, I tell my children, uh, I have a phrase that I use that one of my friends taught me years ago. It's uh, It was, um, I pray for you every day. 
so you can take great excuse me you can take great risks you can take great risks i tell my kids you know every day i pray for them specifically by name and i say you can take great risks because i I think you're protected that's my way of saying have confidence have confidence that your father your parents are on your side in prayer and otherwise and you can do, you can take great risk because if something happened to my uh, my child, I would help him, right? I mean, that's one of the beauties of, and that's what we should do for everyone, each other. Maybe one of the goals of this holiday season in a particular way to talk about that. But my point is, you, you're, 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 my family, I hope, my children have a sense of reliability and, and, and relying and therefore that's valuable to them. It's a kind of trust, right? It's they trust that you're there. And so in this um, period, distrust and verify what you need to know. It is a major change, but it is the change that's required. Uh, it, otherwise, we are uh, going to be buffeted, going to be bounced along, going to be put in a position where I don't think you can succeed well. I think that's just the facts. I mean, you cannot be, um, if, you, if, you, if you do trust and verify right now, you're guaranteeing that you're going to be um, beleaguered. You're guaranteeing that you're going to be taken advantage of. You're, you're guaranteeing that you will be disadvantaged. And so you can't do that. And if you're told you must do that, you have to say to yourself, why? Why are people saying trust systems that are clearly broken? Even the systems, of, for example, of, uh, oh, well, we saw the cryptocurrency, you know, the, the, the fraud that, uh, that was perpetrated in one aspect of it. But even in the financial markets, right? Even in the Fed, even in the pick a topic, the 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 presumption of innocence in institutions. There still should be a presumption of innocence for individuals, especially criminal. But as to institutions, I think you've got to flip it on its head. I know you do. I know you do. You have to. That's just a reality. We could all wish it was different. We could all hope it was different. We can all pray it was different. But it's not different. Distrust and verify. Distrust and verify. We're going to develop that over the next coming. Uh, and 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 by the way, uh, let me finish by saying this. If what you need to know is distrust and verify, you have to do it with a spirit of generosity. You don't have to be angry about it. You don't have to be. Skepticism doesn't have to be hate. But it has to be. You have to be real about it. All right. That's what you need to know. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Don't forget. ProAmericaReport.com. ProAmericaReport.com. Go over there and sign up for the daily email, the wink, which goes in. What you need to know goes 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific, each weekday, Monday through Friday. Be right back. Ed Martin on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Been a, a long two weeks for me. I've been on the road and in St. Louis and all, and I haven't talked to my friend Ted Malik. I feel like I need a extra therapy session, Ted. I mean, the biggest question, I every time I, I have I have one of my listeners who is actually from St. Louis, and she will always say to me, don't forget to ask Ted what he's working on next. That was that like the tease that you do. So uh, okay. welcome back, Ted Malik. And let me, let me say to you, we haven't talked since you started uh, commenting on Lee Zeldin, who really did perform extraordinarily well in his run for governor in New York, outperformed every expectation. And he just it turns out he's just a very, very talented uh, political force. And, I, you know, it's a tough state. Uh, but you mentioned him for uh, the RNC chairman. I think he's he did withdraw his name for that. And uh, but but we certainly do have a mess at the RNC. So welcome back, Ted. And, and give me your thoughts on what's going on. 
Yeah, I should interview you because I think you know as much as anyone about the <laughs> RNC. I doubt but, it. But uh, I did it a couple of weeks ago, uh, and, and this is a debate that has gone on in Republican circles, not just in Washington, but across the country, because it's a, a you know a national committee structure, 168 members from all states and territories. Uh, I mean, if you lose, let's just say you're a football team and you lose three seasons in a row, um, <laughs> and you you know you're supposed to win in the third season, and all the stats are. Uh, stacked up in favor, and you still lose, what happens? Right. right. Well, the head coach uh, actually is removed. Right. Or, you know, the assistant coaches um, find other placements. So my, my question was a generic one in the first instance was, uh, um, yeah, I think we need some new talent at the RNC to run this better, differently, more efficiently, and with a winning agenda in mind. Lee Zeldin at that point in time had performed well, as you said, in New York, had turned over, I think, four or five uh, seats on Long Island and basically helped the Republicans keep this uh, or keep to get the Senate and put somebody in the speaker seat. So Lee Zeldin, uh, who is a very likable guy, by the way, and and not a harsh ideologue in any sense, very lovely Jewish man, uh, very capable. And uh, I said, well, and others said, well, why not, why not put him in, in that position? He would perform admirably. And he, at first, hinted he might be interested. Then I think he did some vote counting, and yeah. the incumbent seemed to have, uh, you know, maybe 100 votes lined up, and it would be hard to displace her. Like everything in Washington, it's hard to undo. Um, but the the, uh, the the press has been out there uh, on both sides, frankly, raising this issue. And now we have a, well, we have two other people who have turned their head in the ring. A gentleman from my pillow, you know, Mike Lindell, who's a big Republican donor, right. you know, probably is not a political guy in terms of organization of campaigns and such, but right. he said he would be interested. And then a very capable woman from California, uh, who is a brilliant attorney and has a lot of uh, background in uh, in questions of free speech and civil liberties, Armit Dillon, who's often on Tucker Carlson and is very articulate, said that she actually would take the job and that she's been going after it very aggressively. She's lined up upwards of 35 votes right now in her favor. So she is a very credible challenger. Uh, we're talking with Ted Malik and, and the piece I was referring to as American Greatness a few weeks ago. And and, and although the Lee Zeldin parts moved on, um, a, 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 the the meat of the uh, column uh, still exists and it, it still stands true. You know, an RNC, you're talking about if it were directed by someone else, it, this last time ran an election integrity operation, hundreds of millions of dollars spent, and it didn't work, right? I mean, if it, let's be just very frank, Arizona and Pennsylvania, um, the two, two big... Uh, uh, battlegrounds this uh, November, this past November, they did not see a dramatic change in the quality of the election integrity fight, and millions and millions were spent. Now that's that's my measurement. Uh, as you point out, we're talking again, Ted Malika. There's 168 members of the RNC. That's all that matters. It's like when people say, "Is Kevin McCarthy care what so and so thinks? He cares what his members think." You know, 222 members. That's who he's got to win over. Same thing here. I guess Ted, the question is, again, you're an observer. Over the last, say, 50 years, I'd say, uh, conservatively, maybe, uh, of politics and uh, particularly party politics. Does the RNC 
matter? I mean, and by that, I mean, when I was in there, what I noticed was it it tends to be a pass-through place where fundraising goes on and consultants get paid. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really lead on messaging. It doesn't really lead on candidate selection. That's been managed by, you know, uh, by uh, McConnell's operation at the NRSC or McConnell's operation outside of the NRSC um, and the NRCC similarly. So other than a fundraising sort of racket, does it matter? It matters slightly, not probably as as much as uh, some would lead us to believe. It does still have budget. It has a large personnel. It has some sway, and it does do some messaging. Um, I think that it could do a lot more, and that's particularly around this question of how elections are held. Uh, I mean, when the framers started, of course, elections were held on a certain Tuesday, you know, in in November, that's no longer the case. So the Republicans have either got to decide that they're going to fight this battle and try to put that genie back in the bottle, which seems unlikely to me, frankly, or restrict it enough so that they they could win elections again, or we're going to be a losing party, uh, you know, for perpetuity. The, The question is, what is the real purpose, what is the real organizational structure, and are the RNC going to be players on the part of the emerging new Republican Party and not the old uh, kind of McConnell Republicanism? That's really the battle. Yeah, we're talking to Ted Malik. Um, so if you if you um, envision a new... Well, uh, 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 that's a different question. Insofar as there have been... There is a shifting, at least uh, media wants to have the conversation that um, there's a lot of questions over um, over Trump in the primary and DeSantis and everybody else. It used to be that the party was run by one, you know, the person who was in charge, an incumbent. We've never had this situation in the modern era where a, a you know, former president who could run again. Um, but it does seem like if if um, uh, Donald Trump says, uh, I want uh, Harmeet over um, uh, Rana, it sets up a different fight. So far, he's kind of said uh, either one. Or I, like, I know them both uh, pretty well. I, you know, who's the kingmaker here? Well, I think Trump is still in a driver's seat. Maybe not the driver's seat he was in two months or six months ago, but he still has a lot of sway. Even when it comes to Speaker of the House, you see him, you know, re-endorsing Kevin McCarthy and saying, look, just you five or six players get back in line and uh, let's give him his chance. If he were to come out and say, look, we need a new RNC, and I, I think that it's time for the old one to go, I think that that would get the attention of um, those 168 people who are going to make this determination uh, in Miami later in January. Um, and uh, and so, what what do you? I mean, we're only a few weeks away. Yeah, I'm going. Um, I'm going to Mar-a-Lago on uh, January twelfth. Is the is the when is the when is the RNC meeting? Is it when is it? Is it after that? No, that's later in the month. I'm speaking for the Palm Beach Republican Party on the topic: Why is America so great? Um, the uh, so if you had to sort of place a small wager right now, mm-hmm. what happens? I mean, you know, we're down to 168 voters, as you point out. Ronna McDaniel's got a hundred of them, uh, or says she does. So is she says, and I think they're they're very much in play because Harmeet has picked off California, which you might expect, Arizona, Nebraska, Iowa. She's picking off these states one at a time, 
And I think that it's going to be a closer vote, first of all, than you know people expect. But if certain people chime in, one in particular you've already mentioned, this could sway the other way. I mean, the people in the swamp probably want to keep the swamp. This has been a problem for Republicans since uh, Trump took office. Yeah. And, you know, the thing, the, the, the other part of this that I, I tell people is um, you don't usually have a chairman this, this long. I mean, part of the reality no. is it's just it's it's as you point out, even if you are pretty good, you, you do it for about six or eight years, you're going to lose an election. And then it's kind of like, OK, let's try some new blood. By the way, one deal that can't be done, you know, you'd say to yourself, well, could someone be vice chair? Could you know, could Harmeet say I'll be vice chair and, and step up? The bylaws of the Republican National Committee require that the chairman be if the chairman is a woman, the vice chairman must be a man and uh gotta love the sexism uh, of the uh <laughs> of the current world so you can't i don't think i deal. want to touch that one no yeah you <laughs> can't you can't make that deal which uh I, I wonder if there's someone that would that would want that so your prediction then are you are, do you think it, dylan can pull it off yeah i'm working for her so i think she can pull it off <laughs> there you go there you go all right ted malik everybody as always ted we'll have you on i hope before we get to christmas uh yes i would love it i'd love to talk to you about advent which is a subject i've been writing on and really where we need to focus our attention in these weeks leading up to christmas but my big article the end of the year yes. which i i know that you like to get these tip-offs is yes. called 2022 good riddance <laughs> why 2022 was such a disappointing year and i have i have 10 reasons uh great all right we'll get to that ted malik everybody thanks ted we'll talk soon uh that's a good one uh, good riddance uh, all right we will take a break and we'll be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report uh i will post up on social media he's got that, that advent uh, column he wants to talk about so we'll get with ted again uh be back in a moment ed martin pro america report Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And I, I've been mentioning uh, in, in the open, I think earlier today, I've been looking forward to talking uh, about this topic. The uh, title of the essay that was sent to me uh, by Professor David Rose is Culture Forms Our Common Life. Uh, and David C. Rose, as I mentioned before we started, is a professor over at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. He is uh, a um, senior fellow at Common Sense Society. He has a... Uh, a book, Why Culture Matters Most, which is one I have. He's got other books that he's written, too. Uh, the Moral Foundation of Economic Behavior is another one. So welcome, uh, Professor Rose. How are you, sir? I am well. How about you? I'm doing great. So I, I have been using, and my listeners are sort of, they, I, they don't tell me they're tired of it, but they might tell you if they talked without me in earshot. I use the phrase distrust and verify and as a contrast to the moment, I've been using it before I got your piece, uh, your essay, which is one of the reasons I jumped on the essay when I read it. I thought I need to talk to uh, uh, Professor Rose. I've had him on the program before. But I use the phrase distrust and verify because we have such doubt about our institutions. And when I read your piece, then I said, OK, but can we can we have a culture of distrust and have things work? So what's your first your reaction to my my uh, turning uh, Reagan's uh, phrase on its head? Well, we certainly can have a culture that works that way and a society that works that way. And the vast majority of human societies in human history have worked that way. In other words, very few societies in human history are what we would call high trust society by today's standards. Right. Um, so trust is normally something that is reserved for people that you know, 
Uh, this is called personal trust or particularized trust. This is such a pervasive view, even someone as uh, much of an advocate of the free society that, that we all take for granted today of Hayek, uh, mm-hmm. Friedrich von Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 74. Uh, he viewed trust as something that really wasn't that terribly important to the study of economics because uh, trust was something that, that only really worked in small groups and that we, we had to devise institutions to coordinate behavior on a grand scale. Huh. I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Hayek, um, of, of course, and I think he gets almost everything right. But on this, I think he's, he's, he's kind of wrong. I think there are things like high trust societies. Uh, there's ample uh, theoretical reasons to believe this, and there's ample uh, empirical evidence to suggest that it's true. And, and we can also tell from our own experiences, uh, if you travel in most of the world, you you and, and then you come back to the United States, you usually are a little bit relieved. Your guard goes down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um if you travel to a few other countries, though, you don't feel this way, especially uh, if you travel to Scandinavia. You really don't feel like your guard's up very much. You really get the sense that most people can be trusted most of the time with respect to most things. This is an unusual thing, but it's an incredibly important thing. And without it, we would have never developed the spectacularly effective free market democracy that, that we now have. So, again, we're talking with uh, Dr. David Rose, uh, Professor Rose is at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, also senior fellow of Common Sense Society. Um, but but is it is the characters is the culture in America based on, I don't know, the, the, uh, the Judeo-Christian values and then the founding documents? Is it based on the fact that there was not a. Um, hierarchical system of in the same way in some of Europe uh, of sort of monarchies or or uh, certain uh, hereditary you know ways of thinking is it and and the question the bigger question is when you when people feel that institutions because one of the things in your piece you just you distinguish is the institutions that we that are valuable but trust is separate from the institutions but if the institutions that are valuable say um, the and maybe this isn't an institution the same way but the administration of justice um and what what if you feel like you can't trust that um the fbi or uh the jury system then is 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 that undermining the trust uh more broadly or what holds it together well the the front end of your question really goes to a, a point that i need to make uh and that is that you know we don't we really don't want to talk about the american culture or this culture or that culture uh, because it creates the view that there's just kind of a distinctive cultural imprint in different societies, and, and that's just not the case. Uh, there's great overlaps, uh, and culture is something that is always adapting and changing. And so the kind of culture, I, I, surely you can appreciate the kind of culture, prevailing culture in the United States when you were 12. Yes. Was, it was pretty different than what it is now. Right. And so that... So culture adapts constantly. The key thing about culture is that it's fixed from the point of view of the individual person's decision in the here and now. In that sense, it it doesn't change, but it can adapt continuously over time 
at the group level. So groups constantly change what they teach their children in order to prepare them for adulthood. And as the institutional environment changes, they teach their children different things. I mean, uh, certainly people in Leipzig, Germany, which would end up being East Germany uh, before World War II taught their children very different things. And after World War II, after East Germany became communist, and then they the next wave of parents and the wave after that, after uh, communism was thrown out and reunification occurred, they teach their children different things now because the things that you have to learn as a child to do well in a society depends a lot on the kind of society you're in. So I think that the problem that we have like today and this and you and you bring up a good point about administration of justice the rule of law in general uh even even more broadly is incredibly trust dependent uh we we have to believe that the people who are interpreting the law and applying the law are doing so with a steadfast regard for the rule of law and not for their own personal preferences or judgment uh, it used to be very common for judges to write in their opinions that they hate what they're about to say, yeah. that they yeah. think what they're going to decide in this case is completely crazy, but that's the law we have, and, and they will urge uh, legislators to deal with this issue. But until the issue's been dealt with, this is the only decision they can make. This was used to be a very common thing that that lawyers all enjoyed the irony of it and so on. But this is becoming very rare now. Uh, judges uh, increasingly uh, just do what they think is right in a Solomon-like sense uh, rather than steadfastly follow the rule of law and then trust our process of the legislature to determine uh, what the laws should be. So I think that this is a this is a case where a certain kind of culture produces a high level of trust. The high level of trust produces people who are trustworthy uh, and and vice versa. And because of that, people can understand exactly what their role is in the system in the case of, say, judges, and therefore understand that they're actually pretty quite constrained. It's one thing for a judge to use their judgment right. to do the best job they can to apply the law to the particular circumstances of the situation. That's a very different thing than a judge using their judgment to overrule the spirit of the law. I mean, it's, you know, you're, the judges yeah. should always be trying to effectuate the spirit of the law as they read it not effectuate justice as they personally define it. But that's what we have increasingly. And as a result, we're losing confidence in our ability to use the judicial system to resolve contractual disputes or to enforce basic rule of law in a variety of ways. We're talking again with uh, David C. Ross. He's a professor of economics over at University of Missouri, St. Louis. Uh, David, excuse me, Rose. Uh, Dr. Rose uh, is also the author of the book, Why Culture Matters Most. I'm sitting here listening to you because when I read your piece, I linked, I noticed a link and I linked over to one of your colleagues on the on this lawliberty.org website named Theodore Dalrymple, who writes, writes just about the topic you talked about, about judges and a change in the, in the, in the sort of culture of judging where People, judges will say, I'm just going to tell you what I want the law to be. I don't care what it says and I I don't care what happens. So uh, it's important. It's a great piece uh, also, by the way. But I I want to go back to something at the beginning. Um, Again, uh, Dr. Rose, um, you're a teacher. 
and a writer and a, and a thinker on this. And what you mentioned when I was 12, you said, you, don't you remember how you f- felt about the culture and all? Here's my question, though. We're living in a world now where the sophistication of the message machine, I call it the narrative machine, you know, big tech plus big media and big government also is what I call it. But but especially just focus on big tech for a minute. If I was formed by my parents proudly making sure that I said the Pledge of Allegiance at school, kids now are 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 formed their brains are formed by the neuroscience behind uh meta or facebook or tiktok and i you, you were not teaching not for, forget we could still teach the constitution and there are courses and there are people speaking but the day-to-day formation is very different and it, it feels to me like you can't get that under control and therefore i'm not sure you can hold the thing together it is very disturbing. Um, there's no question. Uh, the progressives understood this point uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, they understood the power of culture. Many people were conservative or very pro-market. They they say they understand the power of culture, but then they don't. But then they just drop it and move on. Right. The progressives said they understood the power of culture, <laughs> and then they acted like they understood the power of yeah. culture. Yeah. Uh, they thought they could bend the Western world into a more perfect socialist utopia through uh, the labor union movement. Uh, and it wor- that worked fairly well in Europe. It did not work well in the United States, largely because of Samuel Gompers, who is somebody who did a terrific job uh, keeping the American labor union movement more in line with being something that advocates worker interest in the context of a capitalist system rather than trying to overthrow it. So the progressives that were more focused on America decided that they really weren't going to go make any progress there. So they focused, beginning with John Dewey uh, in particular, on education. And uh, they understood the power of messaging uh, through what looks like traditional pedagogy, but slowly but surely over time, uh, in a death by thousand cuts, changing uh, the culture of the country through the instruction of young children. And, you know, you don't what happened in Loudoun County uh, certainly was uh, very disturbing, but not that hard to predict coming uh, over a century after these attempts to undermine our basic culture and, you know, trust in the system and faith in the system that is normally part of what you were taught uh, from kindergarten on through most of our of uh, the 20th century anyway. Yeah. So that's that's what I, I, I quite agree with you, that, that there's a systematic attempt to do these things. I, I don't think it's just random. I don't think it's just entropy. I think there's an attempt to cultivate uh, children to become adults who are more receptive to, to being uh, treated like children the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. uh, being taken care of by the government and willing to give up a measure of freedom in return for that security, which, of course, Franklin warned us never to do, but right. we just seem to keep doing it more and more of time. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a it's a very interesting topic. I'm glad you're writing on it, thinking about it. David C. Ross, again, professor of economics over at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Uh, his piece, which ran at Law, Law Liberty, Law and Liberty, the uh, website, lawliberty.org. Uh, it's entitled Culture Forms Our Common Life. Really worth a read. I'll put it up 
up on social media. Thank you, sir, for your time. And uh, we'll talk again soon. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for having me and have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. That's nice. Uh, we will, uh, we will, um, be, um, I will put, I'm going to talk about this again. I, I think this, uh, I'm gonna, myself, I'm going to talk about this topic. It's, uh, so important. And the way he, uh, Professor uh, Rose, uh, frames this is very helpful. So we will take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. David DePap stands accused of attacking former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer in their San Francisco home. Immediately after the attack, the liberal media sought to turn this into a left versus right issue. No, DePap was not part of a January 6th pro-Trump rally at the Capitol last year, nor was he member of any MAGA political group. The misleading image posted of him on Instagram, juxtaposed with a J6 rally photo, was actually DePap filming a nude wedding outside of San Francisco's City Hall. The Biden administration rushed to file federal charges with a politicized narrative, and they filed it on the first court day after the attack, while it's taken years to investigate Hunter Biden's apparent misconduct. Meanwhile, the DOJ continues to conceal most of the affidavit it concocted for its surprise raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Still, something about the narrative surrounding the Pelosi attack doesn't really add up. For starters, DePap is an illegal immigrant from Canada, having overstayed his visa many years ago and with serious mental problems, according to those who know him. He was living like a California hippie, sometimes in a school bus near ultra-left-wing Berkeley, and he has a long history of drug use. Meanwhile, the mainstream media conceals the connection between drugs and DePap's senseless attack on Paul Pelosi, which reportedly occurred, by the way, in the presence of two police officers. Democrats are the ones promising to expand the legalization of drugs. That's not Republicans or conservatives. DePap's dysfunctional lifestyle was not that of a Trump supporter. Rather than retreat, Republicans should point out that Democrats are the ones who are pro-drug and soft on crime. Releasing the evidence concerning the attack on Paul Pelosi will help the public assess the Democrats' politicized narrative about it. Conservatives are right to question whether there is more to this story than the government admits, and Republicans should demand that the evidence be made public. Democrats don't get to turn this into a public issue for Republicans, while simultaneously calling for the evidence to remain private. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. The lines have been drawn, those who support law and order and those who don't. Of course, criminals who burn cities and loot businesses want to defund the police. PhyllisSchlafly.com chronicles a plan to keep the streets of America safe. Go to PhyllisSchlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, wrapping things up, just a quick hit. I wanted to uh, alert you to the fact that something that I brought up a few weeks ago about uh, the massive uh, spending that takes place in Washington, how it ends up being targeted for uh, special interests or, more importantly, for political um, friends and uh, relatives of uh, of people who 
uh, are in power. And so the news is out, and I, I talked about this very specifically. And it's actually about 10 days old, the specifics of it, I guess. Um, uh, $36 billion, B, billion dollars, a bailout of the Central States Pension Fund. The Central States Pension Fund, which is a the union um, – that had a pension that was uh, underwater, had been done poorly and and uh, performed uh, badly. And so he helped in the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion, $36 billion will go uh, to pension relief. And the point is that pension has about 350,000 members and um, cuts were the risk of cuts was about 60%. And so basically your tax dollars are going to bail out the pension fund of others. And that's a preference that Congress made and this president did. And it's the Democrats in Congress plus this president. And, you know, my point here is to just to alert you to it. There's other bailouts and, and uh, all the time. There's lots of different things that can be described as bailouts. Uh, but in this case, it's a very specific what I call a political payback, a political payback uh, to the unions with uh, money. And, you know, the unions support Democrats. That's always true. I mean, uh, uh, tradition, not always. It's true, certainly, at this moment in our uh, history of politics. That's right. Uh, but this is all Teamsters. They supported uh, Biden, and Biden's bailing them out. And again, I, I, you know, you say to yourself, well, what's the proper use of our tax dollars? Is the proper use of our tax dollars to bail people out uh, when they have a hurricane go through, a tornado go through? Maybe people will debate it, but I think so. That I feel better about that than bailing out a pension that probably was invested on Wall Street and mismanaged or managed in a way that lost. I lost money on my uh, retirement. Nobody's bailing it out. Anyway, okay, we got to run. We're out of time. Uh, thank you, as always, to Noah Dingley, our great producer, and uh, Ryan Hyde for helping with that. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.